sometimes dream about solutions in the OT space where we don't need the whole internet. And I just look at this and I go, man, SolarWinds didn't need to talk to the internet either. Welcome everyone to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here as usual with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, I hear it's a good one. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so today, uh, you know, Nate, our guest is Brian Owen. He is the security architect at OSIsoft. Uh, you know, in my understanding, he leads the, uh, the product security program at OSIsoft. OSIsoft is, uh, you know, of course, produces the, the Pi Historian and a whole family of products around it, which is, uh, you know, used in pretty much all industries. Um, but I wanted to say about Brian, um, you know, I'm very happy to have him as a guest. Um, I've known Brian for a long time. He is very smart. He is very connected with the industry. And he is strictly fair. Uh, I've never known him to exaggerate, even when it would profit him. I've never known him to downplay a risk, even when you know it would profit him to downplay it. Uh, he is, in my mind, uh, you know, one of the most credible voices in the space. I follow him closely, uh, in large part because he keeps me honest. Our topic today is, you know, we're going to talk about solar winds. We're going to talk about supply chain. We're going to talk about current events more generally in the uh, the industrial security space. Hello, Brian, and thank you for joining us on, on the podcast. Uh, before we start, can you say a few words about yourself and about OSIsoft? Hi, yeah. Hi, Andrew. Um, so, uh, known Andrew for um, over a decade now, and uh, looking forward to this podcast. Uh, I'm an engineer at OSIsoft. Uh, current role is security architect. And OSIsoft is in the business of um, the Pi Historian, uh, widely used uh, for process optimization and, uh, you know, making sure that there's a system of record in case something goes wrong. So um, we've uh, been fortunate to be in business for 40 years. So there's an awful lot of Pi systems out there. Uh, and thank you if if uh, to our listeners who have them, I appreciate it very much. And our topic today is, um, let's call it current events. You know, there's solar winds in the news, there's supply chain being talked about, but you know, there's, uh, there's, other, there's other activity in the threat environment. Um, can, can we start with solar winds? Can you give us uh, a, an intro? You know, what, what happened? What, uh, you know, what's important to you as, as uh, you know, uh, someone who's been active in the industrial security space for a long time and someone who's been, you know, with OSIsoft for a long time, who is a vendor in this space. Andrew, this is a fascinating topic. I'm so uh, glad we get to talk about this together. Um, I guess maybe before we get uh, too much into the overview, I, I would just like to start right off the bat by, um, uh, you know, real acknowledgement to the folks at FireEye who um, really blew the whistle on this and, uh, and started a, a fantastic a bit of, um, you know, the whole community has been, been busy on this and, uh, you know, we've been sequestered for months and months. So I've been reading everything I can about it. It's, uh, it's kind of like a, a, you know, a spy novel that just keeps getting better and better. Uh, so um, 
with that, um, uh, the, um, the, the gist of the supply chain, uh, chain attack is kind of a nightmare scenario where, um, you know, trusted supplier, uh, the, the solar winds is a network uh, monitoring and management um, suite. Uh, their, their Orion um, uh, line in particular uh, was uh, compromised with, with a backdoor that, uh, you know, got distributed in signed software. And, um, you know, they're, they're a very large company. I think uh, market cap of, of a billion with, you know, for a while they were talking tens of thousands of, of um, downloads of this software, but uh, it looks like the, um, you know, a very uh, surgical, um, uh, you know, attack for the second load, second uh, payload, if you will, for uh, who was actually exploited. Uh, so once the software was downloaded and installed, uh, it did call home. And if you were a entity of interest, uh, you got the present of uh, of your own C2 server and um, and, and additional uh, malware. So um, because the SolarWinds module is trusted and credentialed on the network, uh, like most network management tools are, um, that is pretty unprecedented access to uh, these affected entities and. Uh, had a lot of people on the edge of, of their edge of their seats when you find out even government entities uh, um, of, of high stature were, were involved with this or affected by this. So, uh, yeah, it's been been reading like a spy book. The the who done it part. There's tons of people studying it. I think one of the most fantastic uh, pieces too is that the callouts to the command and control servers uh, did this. Uh, the name name generation thing that um, uh, was reversed engineered and and the community of researchers that came together to to you know really start publishing uh, you know here's who received the payloads and so forth has been really fantastic uh, dimension to watch as well. So it's been in the news a lot lately, but just in case. Um some of you, uh, some listeners are catching up. Uh, the SolarWinds attack um, was an attack presumed to have been carried out by a Russian APT on the IT management software company SolarWinds. Um, they were presumed to have used exploits in Microsoft products to get into this company SolarWinds, whose clients we now know involve a lot of US government agencies and major corporations. Um, and through uh, software updates, from SolarWinds' Orion uh, software. Um, they were able to um, attach malware to these software updates um, to get them into higher value targets. So it really is a, a, a complicated supply chain attack insofar as they went from Microsoft to SolarWinds to some really high value targets. That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have touched on SolarWinds before. I mean, we had uh, Dr. Baugh on talking about uh, NERCSIP uh, 013, which is the, the supply chain standard uh, for the, uh, you know, NERC is the North, North American Power Grid uh, Critical Infrastructure Protection Standard. Um, Dr. Barr really looked at uh, the question of solar winds from a compliance perspective, saying, you know, what do we have to do about 
supply chain security because this was a supply chain incident and, you know, really address the question, would, uh, you know, the measures in the NERC-SIP program, the mandatory measures, have prevented something as sophisticated as the, the SolarWinds attack? Um, we had Terry Inglesby on, uh, you know, he touched on SolarWinds as well because it is, it is in the news. Um, you know, his focus was partly, you know, he, he was talking about uh, the science of security. He was talking about attack trees. And the, the real question was, would, you know, did, did attack trees uh, anticipate this class of attack? And uh, secondarily, uh, you know, if we have a, a deep understanding of attack paths into our system, the way that, that attack trees give us, are there things, are there steps we could take to have prevented the attack or have prevented the consequences of the attack? Um, you know, Brian's take on it uh, today is is more generally, you know, what what does this mean for industrial security? What are we learning from it? Um, and, you know, again, we're, we're uh, branching out a bit into uh, sort of bigger issues of supply chain and what it means for product vendors. And, uh, you know, again, uh, a different view of the elephant uh, from Brian here. And to be clear, um, the reason why such a story would warrant three episodes in a row for our podcast is by virtue of the fact that SolarWinds is probably the biggest hack in a number of years, maybe a whole decade. Um, for those out there not entirely familiar, we're talking about an APT who, over the course of, I believe, nine months last year, from March to December, had just about entirely um, unabated access to some of the highest level government agencies in the US as well as some major corporations. That's right. And you know, the 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 goal of the SolarWinds attack appears to have been espionage, appears to have been, you know, theft of information. But uh, it's alarming to anybody in the in the industrial space because the SolarWinds Orion product is a management system. It lets uh, you know enterprise security people manage security settings on firewalls, security settings on routers, configurations of, of networks. And in, you know, that includes a, a, a lot of industrial firewalls, a lot of industrial systems, you know, industrial network components are managed by the SolarWinds product. So these people had the ability to, you know, do a lot of nasty stuff. You know, I'm not aware of any industrial site that went down because of the SolarWinds attack. I am aware of industrial sites that had the uh, the security update installed on equipment in the industrial site and had to be cleaned out afterwards. Um, you know, I am aware of a lot of industrial sites that are thinking about what does this mean? You know, we dodged the bullet this time. Are we going to dodge it next time? What are we going to do about this? There's a lot of people out there asking, what are we going to do about this? It's big news. Let me add to what you said there. Um, you know, credit to FireEye for finding it and, and blowing the whistle. Um, but you know, they also promptly notified the the Solar Winds folks, and I believe you know less than twenty four hours later, Solar Winds had an alert out, you know, uh, upfront and and detailed. So you know, kudos to them too in terms of of notifying the community and and you know helping out with the with the incident response. Absolutely, I think uh, a number of security companies have been involved with this as the um, as we find out more. Uh, maybe a half a dozen or more so far, but uh, I think the earliest one credited with spotting it was uh, Palo Alto Networks, and uh, but uh, their report to SolarWinds didn't have enough um, uh, apparently to actually identify the cause. So um, I, again, this is one of these classic cases where the 
compromise uh, environment is measured in, in months, if not years. Uh, I think some of the earliest recorded uh, things on the timeline are, are back in summer of, of 2019. So, uh, but the, the actual um, supply chain uh, compromise uh, had a more limited window, I think from uh, early uh, uh, 2020 to, uh, to the fourth quarter, about November, December. And, you know, in my understanding of the situation, um, the, uh, there were, you know, more than 10,000 sites or enterprises downloaded the, the software update and presumably applied it. Um, there were much smaller estimates. I saw like between one and 200 sites that were actively exploited because the command and control center had started sending the malware commands instead of just sitting there waiting for, 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 for a command and, you know, not doing anything. Um, I have not heard of any industrial sites, uh, shutting down, you know, being uh, suffering, you know, consequences beyond having to clean some of their systems out. Um, does this mean though that, you know, a, a, a is that, does that agree with your, your understanding and, and B does, does this mean that, you know, in, in terms of industrial security that, we're off the hook. Oh, Andrew. So everyone is holding their breath that um, nothing uh, more dangerous has been left behind because the level of access that was achieved with this back door was, um, was full access. Um, but it, what is known or at least widely reported is um, a lot of espionage activity. Uh, so um, it, it very well, uh, could end that way, uh, or there still may be some presence left behind that that haven't been uh, surfaced yet. If um, it, if it turns out what we understand about uh, nation state um, patterns is uh, that that perhaps this is not sabotage um, would probably be a happy ending at this point, but. Uh, a, a very strong showing by uh, uh, by the adversary for sure. They they won this round. So the key distinction in the point that Brian just made is um, that that the SolarWinds attack was largely espionage, not sabotage, which means that uh, the attackers had um, full access to all of these systems, but we don't necessarily know to what extent they acted. Uh, negatively against them. So it's possible that uh, the APT could have installed all kinds of back doors that we just don't know about because we're only now discovering the true impact of what occurred. That's right. I mean, you know, this is classic behavior on the on the uh, the part of of sophisticated attacks. I mean, I remember back in in 2013, I was at uh, S4. There was a presentation by Mandiant. Uh, Mandiant. Uh, that business was subsequently purchased by uh, FireEye. And, you know, they were talking about these sophisticated attacks. And they said, yeah, they they get called in and they discover sort of mundane uh, remote control malware on on a half dozen machines. You know, they identify it, they clean out the machines, and then they look around a little more saying, did we get it all? And they dig deeper and they dig harder and they find something more subtle. They find a second level of remote control malware that is hidden much more thoroughly on a different batch of machines. Well, 
They clean that out too. Now they're suspicious. Now they dig hard for you know a long time and they find a real nasty. It's just hiding. It's thoroughly hidden. It's not even calling home. They, they pull it out, they analyze it, and they discover that it's going to phone home in another month or six weeks after their investigation is done, after everybody thinks it's all clean. Okay, they find the four machines it's installed on, they rip it out. Now they look hard. Weeks go by. They keep looking. They don't find anything anymore. What does that mean? Does it mean the network is clean now? You really don't know. With, with an adversary this sophisticated, and they start leaving stuff behind of sort of different levels of sophistication, it's nasty. You know, I've, I've heard people say, you know, um, you, get, you get hit by one of these guys, you, uh, you know, you need to burn the building down. So digging a little deeper, um, the, the solar winds, you know, the, the, the reading I've done suggested there was actually two pieces of malware in there. Um, can, you, can you go a little deeper for us? This was a very technical compromise. So the back door itself uh, that was delivered within, um, within the um, SolarWinds software. There's also exploitation of a vulnerability. I think the first one, uh, the back door is sunburst. Uh, and, um, oh gosh, I'm going to blow it here. I think it's, uh, Sunspot is, uh, is, is the exploitation of a vulnerability, um, in, in the Orion product. Uh, so we, we have both those dimensions and then there's, there's, um, additional details about, uh, both the, the payloads that are very interesting, um, and, and what, what gets done. Uh, and then SolarWinds also published some uh, really fascinating information about uh, their their build system on on how this uh, compromise happened on their side. But what I'd like to first focus in on is that both the vulnerability um, and the backdoor um, did require some communication um, out, out to the C2s. So. Uh, to me, when we look at software, uh, in particularly in critical infrastructure, that should have been a red flag, and we would have expected this to have been surfaced earlier. So um, it's the biggest mystery about the Solar Winds compromise to me is that callouts to these unknown uh, domains that had nothing to do with Solar Winds uh, from the Orion product. Uh, sh should have been caught. Um, and surprisingly, even uh, at FireEye, what, what caught their uh, attention was post-exploitation activity uh, involving registration of, of new devices and that kind of activity once, once the uh, adversary was, was unleashed on, on their network. So um, certainly there should have been opportunity to catch it earlier and, and feels like a miss. Um, does that sound right to you? It does. And, you know, in, uh, in particular, um, you know, the, the breadth of, you know, hundreds of, of, well, you know, I'm, I'm told I, the number I saw was between one and 200 sites, uh, many of them government sites that were exploited. Um, you'd think that, you know, 
at least some of these sites would have been fairly aggressive in terms of their security monitoring. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, but you know, intrusion detection is not is not really you know it's something I did ten years ago. It's it's something I follow. It, it's not it's not really my my current field of expertise. Yeah, we we sometimes uh, dream about solutions in uh, in the OT space where we can. Uh, you know, we don't need the whole internet to do everything that we do in, in in control systems. And you know, we talk about why why is a control system connected to the internet? It doesn't need it, et cetera, et cetera. And I just look at this and I go, man, Solar Winds didn't need to talk to the internet either. It was doing a very specific uh, network monitoring task. So this this just stands out and. Uh, and I'll be blatant enough to say if they would have had uh, a um, uh, a strong uh, perimeter protection uh, like like uh, waterfall makes, uh, it it wouldn't have been able to talk out. And we know firewalls can stop uh, these things from egressing as well. So somewhere there was an any any rule or uh, a, or our blind eye uh, turned uh, just saying blind trust to whatever uh, this network management uh, software wants to do. Um, that 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 should be a big lesson learned that comes out of this. Uh, I think we'll see a lot more people prioritizing egress rules in in their perimeter defenses. Maybe I misheard there, but uh, I, I I heard Brian say that uh, the SolarWinds malware didn't need to be internet connected, um, but you know by virtue of the kind of attack it was, it needed to beacon back to to the attackers, right? Yeah, I, I think you've you've uh, misunderstood what he said. Um, what I heard him say was that the SolarWinds Orion product, you know, might need to connect to some of the SolarWinds websites or cloud services to, to do what it does. But that product had no business connecting to random sites on the internet. And so, you know, IT best practice, um, you know, industrial best practice is when you have a uh, a server, an important function like that, that piece of software really belongs on a machine by itself. Buy yourself another machine, put it on the network, put that software on it. And now, you know, this, in a sense, the software has an IP address because it's the only thing running on a machine with an IP address. And now you can go to the firewall and say, look, anytime that machine tries to reach out to random places on the internet, you know, the only place it can talk to is the SolarWinds website. If it tries to talk to anybody else, raise a high priority alarm because that machine should never be connecting out to the internet. And uh, that was missed. Um, you know, that either wasn't set up or the alarm was raised and, you know, it wasn't noticed or it was investigated and they dismissed it. So, you know, best practice should have caught this. I do agree, it, you know, especially the, you know, the suspicious domain names. I mean, the, 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 the traffic to those domains was disguised as sort of normal, I forget the, the exact term, but it was normal sort of diagnostic traffic coming out of the SolarWinds product. This is, you know, the kind of messages looked normal. The, the malicious uh, content was, was embedded in these normal looking messages. But yeah, connections from servers to the internet shouldn't happen. And uh, I know, you know, I know that that uh, many industrial customers have SolarWinds 
Orion components deployed on their industrial networks. And so presumably, at least some of these would have applied the security update sooner or later and had the malware you know, phone home, beacon out to the uh, the command and control center, or at least attempt to, and presumably be foiled by the firewall. You know, when that happens, you get a log entry saying, just denied access to this domain name that you've never heard of before from one of the servers in your control system. You know, you would think that that this would alert someone to, you know, something weird is going on. I totally agree. And, um, you know, to uh, to their credit, uh, these, uh, especially the government entity entities, they have some very sophisticated um, intrusion detection systems. I think the Einstein system and the CRISP system would have been in scope for uh, at least uh, some of these affected uh, government entities, uh, and maybe some of the industrial ones. And and uh, it, you wonder, you know how that uh, traffic wasn't spotted. And uh, some of the theories I've seen is, is that, okay, uh, cool trick. Uh, don't, don't try any command and control traffic, no egress for a couple of weeks. So uh, maybe there was a machine learning period that, that uh, somehow after two weeks, it said, well, that, you know, there must not be anything wrong with that. Um, uh, and then it was allowed to go out with some kind of any any rule. Um, it it just didn't make sense to me. There there should have been enough time to you know to learn it properly. Uh, the other theory is that well the a lot of these destinations it's not like they were blatantly going across uh, to uh, the internet to another country. They were going to you know cloud providers. So it, at least it looked like. Maybe they weren't checking by domain name. Maybe they were checking by IP address range. Could it have been uh, something like that that allowed it to to sneak through those those systems? So, um, so some of those lessons learned will you know will end up in some details that will hopefully improve intrusion detection in, in the future. But but for now, it, uh, we would have liked to seen. Uh, better results from such an advanced system. I agree. My own, you know, my own preoccupation though is intrusion prevention rather than intrusion detection. So, you know, can we talk about, you know, looking forward, what does this mean for prevention? What, uh, you know, what should the, uh, what should industrial sites be doing uh, looking forward, you know, in light of the, uh, the learnings from this attack? Um, you know, and eventually let, let's talk about, you know, what should vendors be doing? That's, um, you know, it's always the uncomfortable question. The, I think the elephant in the room here, uh, Andrew, is that um, uh, as hard as we try, uh, software is, is not yet perfect. Software development is not yet a perfect uh, profession. And, um, you know, there will be uh, certainly vulnerabilities in complex software. Um, with the uh, long-tailed dependencies in modern software, uh, uh, we probably need to expand that to include the idea that there will be some kind of unintended, unwanted uh, code. Um, uh, you know, call it a backdoor if you want, uh, but 
the the idea that code can be implanted uh, without the um, uh, without a supplier knowing it uh, is is a problem that needs to be solved still. So what does that mean for uh, a company that has to operate the software and critical infrastructure? It does it, it does mean they need to look at uh, these uh, you know, prevention measures as, as you're suggesting. Um, now, it won't stop with prevention. Uh, we'll want to, I don't know if you've been following the software bill materials kind of initiative, uh, uh, but the idea of, we just can't accept software and trust it blindly. Uh, we'll we'll want to know what's in it. And we'll want to know what's in it from the point of view of, uh, you know, are, have these bits been tampered with, you know, hashes and signatures and so forth, down to, you know, the ingredients. And um, uh, right now, uh, breaking those into individual files uh, and then into uh, all the different software that went into those files seems to be the the um, the method that that uh, will be easiest to automate so I think that'll that'll come first uh, so once once we have visibility um, into the software it'll be much easier to make make trust decisions um, in terms of how uh, how much inspection needs to be done, how much um, um, oversight needs to be done about, you know, the operation of the software. But ultimately, in the end, uh, and we have this problem in ICS, is we have to worry about our software being uh, legitimate functions being abused. So we'll never get out of the business of having to closely monitor how the software operates once it's in production. So yeah, the 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 software bill of materials concept makes makes a lot of sense to me. You know, we we need to know where the bits are coming from. Uh, the vendors, you know, need to to know where their own bits are coming from. They need to communicate that to the customers. Sometimes there's chains. There's whole trees of vendors. You know, suppliers supplying other vendors, supplying others who eventually add up to very large systems that you know we'd kind of like to know where all the pieces come from and, and how current all the pieces are which vulnerabilities might apply to us in these complex systems um, but it gets more complicated than that um, you know as you know uh, the largest systems out there it's hard to avoid using any open source software open source is such a big thing nowadays and the thing about open source is that in principle anybody can get involved in you know helping produce the source code, which introduces, you know, a degree of, of risk, a degree of uncertainty that we just don't have when development is being done in-house in vendors. Um, you know, I know there's some initiatives in, in this regard. Can you can you talk about what's going on in, in the open source world? Oh, this is uh, exciting. Um, uh, you know, what's going on uh, with Linux Foundation and Microsoft, um, to, to address this problem. And, and I want to properly position this as, as you know, direction. Now, to a certain extent, um, there is there's success and there's uh, solutions that have been able to implement things like reproducible builds. Um, and uh, uh, 
you know, dependency tracking and and so forth. Um, uh, but it's still it's a it's hard it's a hard road, and I, you know, we're we're talking about um, years for um, companies to to get proficient in this and for tool chains to get uh, provision for this. But to to dive into the concept of reproducible build, uh, you could uh, you could go all the way back, I suppose, uh, to the uh, to the Ken Thompson paper. Uh, about reflections on trusting trust, right? Well, if a compiler um, builds a program, can you can you trust that program? And uh, the idea with reproducible builds is um, essentially uh, decentralizing all that, and it's kind of perfect for the open source uh, community because if you have source code and all these different repositories, and you're able to build it in separate environments and have it come out with uh, binary exactly the same bits, uh, it's believed that that will go a long way to solving this um, this problem. And, in, and indeed, when we look at how the solar winds, uh, uh, what we've known about how the build system was compromised, uh, that that solution, reproducible builds, would would have exactly been able to detect uh, some some tampering in one build environment, but not not another. And uh, and that's that's pretty exciting to have finally solved this uh, decades old um, uh, kind of Turing test that Ken Thompson came up with. Um, and what's involved is you know it's a very nuanced technical problem. I would encourage anyone to review um, uh, Mark Rasinovich's talk at uh, RSA in 2020, where he um, gives an overview of this. But the, the idea is that um, things embedded in your software that would prevent this kind of binary comparison is, are things like timestamps. Think of how hard it is going to be to go through projects and and make sure that uh, the timestamps are all set to a uh, uh, a static number that can be compared across diverse build environments. Right, that's that's the kind of challenge we're talking about. And people have figured out how to do it. Uh, there's a lot that will uh, need to happen before that propagates all the way uh, into um, uh, application supply chain uh, makers, but the fact that uh, Linux Foundation and Microsoft, the fact that the operating system folks are getting this down is is a is a huge achievement and uh, something to look forward to. In the meantime, um, uh, some of the low hanging fruit uh, is really to lock down these build environments and. And I think one of the reasons uh, that supply chain uh, has become attractive is because, uh, let's face it, some of the companies you work with, Andrew, they've gotten to be hard targets. And really the best way to go after them is maybe the only way to go after them is through uh, softer targets in their supply chain. So uh, as we take things like multi-factor authentication and make sure that's applied all throughout uh, build environments, uh, we should get the same effect, right? It, it's going to be very difficult to compromise supply chains with, without uh, 
um, you know, that without it being a nation state actor, basically. Uh, and essentially, one of the big strategies we like at OSIsoft is um, these two-person rules, right? A lot of procedural uh, steps around uh, being able to protect code repositories and build code and so forth. We, we don't want to have a single point of failure where things can go wrong. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company. In our latest report, we look back at 2020. We observe that the most important threats in 2020 were targeted ransomware, supply chain breaches, and cloud connectivity. We pull these threats together into four new kinds of blended attacks. Then we look at different kinds of cyber defenses, and we determine how effective these defenses are against each of these modern attacks. To access these insights into today's threats and what can be done about them, please download our report at waterfall-security.com slash 2020 report. So Nate, let me give you a little background on that. Uh, Ken Thompson is one of the pioneers of uh, computer science. Uh, he and Dennis Ritchie wrote the first uh, copy of the Unix operating system. They invented the C programming language. Uh, they eventually were given the uh, the Turing Award, which is in a sense the, the Nobel Prize for uh, computer science. And uh, in their in his acceptance speech, Ken Thompson talked about trusting trust. He said, look, um, what if I embed a virus into the C compiler? You know, the, the compiler is what translates the C programming language into executables. Um, I, you know, I write my virus into the source code of the C compiler. I compile the compiler with the virus in it, and then I erase the source code to the virus. And what the virus does is every program that the C compiler compiles uh, it inserts the virus into. Eventually, the C compiler is used to compile a new version of itself, and it inserts the virus into itself. Now, there's no source code for the virus anywhere. There's no evidence anywhere that this virus exists other than this binary for the virus that keeps propagating itself uh, you know, from one version of the C compiler to another and from every piece of source code into the executable because the C compiler keeps inserting it into everything it compiles. And, uh, you know, how would you, how would you detect something like this? And this is where this concept of, of reproducible builds comes in. Um, you know, in the, in the open source world, um, anybody can start, uh, you know, inserting uh, source code into, the, into things. But even, you know, a lot of people in the open source world, they're not going to download huge amounts of source code and try and build that code themselves. They just download an executable. What if someone has tampered with the build system, you know, just like the SolarWinds build system was tampered with? What if someone's tampered with the build system to insert a nasty into the binary, even though it does not exist in the source code? How would you detect that in these very complicated build environments? That's what we're talking about here. You know, a reproducible build is where you can take the same source code, build it somewhere else on a, a different, you know, system, but... Uh, produce the same, uh, an executable, and now compare the executables. If you do this today, the executables, you know, the, the compare tool is always going to come back and say they're different because they are. There's timestamps are different. There's subtle, you know, spurious differences that are inserted into these very complicated binary artifacts 
by the build system. And so you cannot compare them. And so, you know, another tool in terms of, you know, advancing supply chain security is this concept of a reproducible build where you can build it somewhere else and wind up with a bit for bit exactly the same executable as, you know, the one that's being distributed. And if you see a difference, you can say, just a minute, that's not supposed to happen. Something fishy is going on. And you've got a fighting chance of detecting these nasties that have been inserted into products in the build process as opposed to in the source code. So coming back to the the, the software bill of materials, um, there's a lot of effort and energy being invested into this. And, you know, it, it seems like a useful initiative. Um, is it going to solve the supply chain problem? I mean, I, I struggle to see how a software bill of materials would have helped with the solar winds breach. Right, Andrew. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because uh, this, this particular um, uh, build um, environment compromise uh, would not have been picked up uh, by the software bill of materials uh, approach. So uh, I think it points out that you, there are a lot of people working out. There's a lot of uh, talks about software bill materials. SBOM is uh, in every security conference, and and it deserves the attention it's getting. And um, uh, but it's not a silver bullet, and we don't want to position it as such. The the it's really infrastructure that we need in order for everyone uh, to. Uh, to really be able to do the things that we need to do for reproducible builds, to to be able to uh, properly respond, uh, one of the big problems uh, people had is is just not even knowing uh, what kind of software they have in their environment. And um, so, software bill of materials uh, uh, is kind of this infrastructure glue, and I look at it. Almost in phases of capabilities that I expect to see is, you know, the first one is, um, uh, are, are these the bits that I that I think they are, right? Uh, so, um, and, and that's going beyond just uh, a digital signature or a, or a hash. It's you know understanding kind of the contents uh, uh, in a granular way, and then the next question uh, that I think about it, the progression from, hey, you know, are, are these the right ones, is, is knowing if we're actually running the bits we think we're running. And now we're now you look at, well, how, how do I actually apply that in the more operational sense? Um, you know, are there, uh, uh, I, I remember you giving a talk at S4 about whitelisting and um, uh, that's where I'm going with this is we have to get to a place in critical infrastructure where uh, we know exactly what bits are, are running because uh, hey, even though in solar winds uh, the uh, it's been uh, reported that uh, some of the C2 commands came down as non-executables, right? They were bundled up in uh, JPEGs and stenography kind of things. Um, we still face this problem in a lot of cases of um, malicious DLLs, and uh, to, people just don't know what code is is running on their systems. And then, then the last piece: once we get those two competencies of 
actually knowing what's in the code and knowing uh, what what's actually running. Uh, the last one is is that hard one is are the bits really any good or uh, basically can I still trust them because we know over time there's kind of uh, kind of bit rot where uh, vulnerabilities emerge exploits emerge um, problems emerge in software and it needs needs servicing uh, or or maybe they haven't kept up with uh, the latest mitigations and uh, ASLR and so forth. So, uh, you know, we don't have to work on one, two, and three uh, one at a time serially. We, you know, we can work on those uh, in, in parallel. But in my mind, uh, I lay them out in that order because I think it's easier to tackle the first one and that last one uh, uh, for are the bits any good? Can I still trust them? Uh, that's going to take a long, long time and. SBOM is a, is a huge part of all answering all three of those questions. So Nate, let me jump in here um, and, and just paraphrase, because I think this is sort of the, uh, the, the, a great way to sum up how this all fits together. Um, the, the SBOM, the software bill of materials um, helps, but it's in a sense, the first step. It says, where do the bits come from? I might have bits from this vendor, from that vendor. I might have nested vendors. This vendor bundles a bunch of stuff from four other vendors, which bundles stuff from three other vendors. So where do they come from is one part of the question. Uh, the next part is, are those really the bits we're running? And you know, he mentioned my presentation, whitelisting at S4. This was a number of years ago. Um, I demonstrated how to attack a whitelisting system um, by using scripted code, uh, you know, I would have uh, an interpreter running. I might even have a script running, and the script would itself download additional script. That script would come in as text. Script is just text. And then you interpret the text as if it were commands. So really, you're running code that you thought was text. That, And, you know, in, in a lot of these compromises, you, you will actually, you know, the bad guys will download code into the malware while it's running and in, you know inject the code into memory and start executing the code. So the code you're looking at in terms of the product you purchased and the SBOM you're looking at may not be the code you're running because you've downloaded other stuff and you're running it now. And the third one is even if you understand where everything came from, even if you understand that you really are running what you think you should be running, now the question becomes, can I trust that stuff? Um, and he's talking about, you know, in the industrial space, we tend to leave stuff running for much longer than is wise because we're focused on safety and reliability risks. And we don't really consider the security risks that come from, you know, leaving stuff in place for a long time, long enough for the bad guys to discover vulnerabilities, long enough for the, the encryption algorithms to become out of date because they've been broken by the bad guys and so on. So, you know, three steps. Yes, the S-bomb, understand what you're running. But number two, figure out, are you really running that stuff or did some other stuff arrive out of nowhere and now you're running it? And number three, you know, even if we do understand completely what we're running, is it still any good? Some of what you just said, uh, you know, reminds me of an episode about a year ago uh, with Matt Gibson at EPRI. And, you know, his 
one of his bottom lines was, guys, uh, we have to know our systems. We have to know how they're supposed to work. We have to know what pieces are supposed to be there. You know, we have to know our systems better than our enemies do. If it's the other way around, we're at a serious disadvantage. Oh, Andrew, I, I love that from Matt. And he's in good company with uh, Rob Joyce, uh, who gave a similar presentation at Enigma in, uh, a few years back. But he basically said that's what the adversary is going to do. They're, they they try to know our systems better than we know them. And uh, to an extent, when we look at SolarWinds, um, uh, build system breach, uh, that that was almost a, an example of um, the adversary knowing how that build system worked almost better than the the software uh, supplier. And I mean no disrespect to SolarWinds, this is a serious adversary. But uh, to when you study just how tricky that was, and the fact that the the uh, some of the artifacts um, were cleaned up. Uh, midstream, right? So uh, if SolarWinds didn't have a way to go back and do the forensics on older systems, uh, uh, they they would have missed this. So um, it, it's, it's exactly right. Matt is right. We need to know our systems inside and out, upside down. Uh, I really love the work that Matt's done on the EPRI uh, technical assessment methodology. It, it provides a structured way for people to get to know their systems better. It provides a structured way for uh, suppliers like OSISoft to give people a running start. Um, here's, here's a cybersecurity data sheet that uh, uh, gives you a standardized way of understanding the system from a, a security perspective. So um, that's, that's a very astute uh, assessment and clearly uh, fits in with our uh, discussion about S-bombs. You, you want to know uh, what's, what's, you know your system very well. So thank you, Brian. This is, this has been very useful. Um, before we part ways here, uh, is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. This is always so much fun um, talking with you. We haven't been able to see each other um, at uh, conferences for the obvious reasons, but um, th this has been fun. One of the things about the SolarWinds um, uh, incident that I, I really would like to close on is that we really uh, uh, not take a knee-jerk reaction uh, to this. Um, and in particular, um, I'm very concerned that um, supply chain paperwork will will dominate the the reaction um, and and really the paperwork itself is not going to be helpful i think when we really start working closely with our customers we find out there's a lot more low-hanging fruit uh, that needs to be addressed and um, that the message for the supply chain attacks is to uh, really join the community and get involved in initiatives like SBOM, use services uh, like Adolis Fact or uh, Finite State, these uh, 
learn more about your systems and focus your energies there instead of um, paperwork and contracts and um, you know silly requirements that thou shalt not put any back doors and so forth. This is all kind of one-on-one stuff and it's busy work. Uh, we've got serious work that needs to be done. Uh, we need to understand our systems better. We we can't get uh, buried down with uh, bureaucracy and knee-jerk reactions to um, to this attack. Andrew, you want to uh, wrap things up here with a thought? Sure. Um, you know, uh, Brian finished here by you know mentioning paperwork and supply chain paperwork. This was what uh, you know Joe Bog was talking about with NERCSIP 013. There's a lot of of record keeping you have to you have to do for your supply chain, and uh, you know I think I'm going to paraphrase Brian here that you know that's a lot of work and not a lot of benefit. The real benefit comes from understanding what bits are you executing, understanding are they really the bits you're executing or did something get injected just now, and understanding okay if they really are the bits I'm executing are they still any good? All three of those questions are more important than the paperwork as to who did I buy these bits from. So, you know, I thought that that was a useful insight and, and uh, you know, it sounds like there's uh, quite a bit of work left to do on, uh, on sorting this out. Agreed. Thanks to Brian Owen for speaking with you, Andrew, and thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thanks to everyone listening. <laughs>